0: Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the back to the office challenge for agencies to keep top talent.
1: If you're a high demand employee in the government, and you've got one agency that's saying this, and another agency that's giving you more flexibility and choices in your work environments. I think you, you, you'll you see kind of internal migration.
0: OPM's four-year strategy lays the foundation for remaking the workforce.
2: If you can really build strong working relationships, positive and productive working relationships, using this plan, They will be able to demonstrate and measure the kinds of improvements that they are seeking.
0: And the Marine Corps says thanks to its IT team for good reasons.
3: Recognition drives appreciation. And when you feel appreciated, you'd be surprised how much people can um, continue to produce for you.
0: It's Friday, April 29th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. C-suite leaders across government will oversee how their agencies implement the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, according to new guidance from the Biden administration. Those leaders will serve on cross-functional teams at each agency to monitor how their departments are executing on the law. Agencies will choose senior accountable officials who will be responsible for implementing the law too. The Office of Personnel Management is the Quality Services Management Office for Civilian Human Resources Transactions. The General Services Administration was the first home of that CUSMO when the Trump administration was trying to merge OPM into GSA. OPM says it'll offer HR-shared services from enterprise resource planning platforms to point solutions through the QSMO. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Voting's open now for the best bosses in federal IT. You can vote for the best bosses till May 20th. You can find a link to see the nominees and vote in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. the Office of Personnel Management, in its first week of in-person work. A memo from OPM Director Kieran Ahuja told employees the agency would start having them back in the office this past Monday. Dan Matthews is head of federal sales for WeWork. He's former commissioner of the Public Building Service at the General Services Administration. Dan, welcome. It's great to see you again. A lot of the conversation around back to the office has revolved around the people, but the people have to come back. What is your sense of what people should be thinking about about the space itself that these employees are coming back to in some cases after two years of not being there at all. Welcome, Dan.
1: Well, thanks Francis for having me here today. It's great to be back on your show. And uh, well, first of all, I just would say kind of a big picture. I think it's a good thing that, uh, you know, the president had a state of the union address talked about federal employees coming back into the office. I think we're starting to see baby steps towards that. Um, for those office workers that were able to work remotely for the last two years. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. It's a good thing for communities. It's a good thing for the culture of the organizations. Um, but it's uh, it's a challenge. There are a, a variety of challenges that I, I think we'll probably be talking about. And, and one of them is, uh, I think it's pretty clear, the real estate footprint they had pre-pandemic for, for these office workers probably is not very well suited for what the, the future state is going to be. And there's a lot of uncertainty over what will that future state look like over time and how is it going to evolve? So that makes it hard for government to make decisions, but they, you know, it's been two years. They, they need to start moving. And regarding
0: the footprint, I think a lot of people are focused on the size. People say, well, we won't need as much space, but I, the thing that I think is probably not getting as much attention, please correct me if I'm wrong, is what the configuration of that space looks like. What do we need to do? Do we need hoteling? Do we need more conference space? Because people, when they come in less often, will be working together in space. Uh, I, there's uh, so many variables there, and I wonder what those variables are that we should be considering rather than just the elasticity of the size.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a, great, a great point, and I think it's, if, I, if there's one word that would sort of describe what's necessary right now is increased flexibility and it's flexibility at, at different levels right it's flexibility in location right because now with the, the the capabilities that you know remote workers have for increased telework there is a des- very strong desire among employees for some flexibility in where they work not just you know what type of configuration of a particular building, but uh, different locations. And and having different choices, um, you know, in a span of a week, right? Working from home, working from the main office because they're gonna be getting together with their colleagues or, you know, maybe a near near home location because they've got an important meeting where they need quiet and some, some better technology and equipment uh, choices and where they work and in, in the types of spaces, like you were saying, the layout. Is it heads downward? Are they, you know, in a brainstorming session, do they need to have a, a whole bunch of virtual hybrid meetings with people? Those types of uh, needs and, and uses throughout the day kind of require different types of space. And, and the reality is an individual's day, they probably will move between different types of work throughout the day. So it's not just a one-size-fits-all. It's going to evolve uh, in a person's day and over time. And that's where I think the government has a a real challenge, but also a significant opportunity. How do you um, meet the employees' desires for increased flexibility and choice? and, and create exciting places where they, the government can attract talent, because that's so important for solving government problems, is talent attraction, and do it in a way that's cost effective for the taxpayer. I mean, I think the big picture, those are the the, the big challenges that people are trying to figure out now.
0: And what strings them all together, Dan? What fits all of those? Because everything that you just said sounds very reasonable and very desirable for building the workforce that we talk about in this community all the time. But how, how does one do all of those things at the same time?
1: Uh, so I would say that the big challenge in government um, is sort of a procurement challenge. The tools that the government has to actually acquire what they need um, and so when it comes to to real estate, the tools that they have are pretty inflexible and they require a lot of capital. And the government struggles to get capital for real estate. I mean, that has been a perennial problem, decades-long problem. It's there's just not a huge political constituency for renovating and maintaining buildings. I mean, that's just a political reality. Um, and so um, the typical solutions, if you own it, like If you want to reconfigure something, well, you need 100% of the capital to do that. If you're going to sign a traditional lease, you're going to be there probably at least 10 years. You also need a fair amount of money up front to build out the space. And then you're kind of stuck with it for 15 years because if you change it, well, you just really undermine the whole financial value prop of it.
0: It's funny. In a way, GSA was way, way, way ahead of its time. There was a time where GSA managed, I think it was 12 um remote work locations all around the beltway and to that idea that you just touched on a moment ago that somebody had a a work location that was close to their home wasn't hq but they could go to this location and i think it was 2010 or 2011 something like that even
1: earlier uh, it started earlier. Uh, yeah. Congressman Frank Wolf yep. actually um, was the big sponsor of that. He, yep. he actually signed some, had some legislation enacted into law uh, late '90s, early 2000s for these telework centers. And you're right. I just think that at the time, that the, the technological capability just wasn't really there, mm. it didn't quite take off. But you know, I think the pandemic has really increased, has shown that that time is now. Yeah. And so the question is, how does the government create things like that when they are in such a capital constrained environment? When you look at, it seems kind of ridiculous to say that when you think of how much government spending there's been over the last couple of years, but when you look at GSA's budget, they they haven't gotten hardly any capital at a time when there's so much money um, you know, going out the door with, with, because of the COVID and everything else in the economy. Um, but it hasn't landed on on capital for office buildings, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty telling. And so, you know, how does the government actually achieve that capability when they don't have the capital themselves? Uh, you know, there's a private industry that's more than happy to step up and provide that. And that really allows them to drive quality of space, but also per person per year cost can really drop. I remember when I was a commissioner at GSA, we started tracking daily usage of some of our federal buildings where we had you know card swipes where you go in and out and the numbers were shocking in some some locations we would have agencies literally spending 25 thirty five thousand dollars per person per year and the issue was they weren't in a taj mahal fancy building the building actually was pretty sad but they just had so much more space than they needed because well, you know, it's a very, the government owned it, um, but it was literally costing them 25, $35,000 per person per year. I mean, that's an astronomical amount of money. Um, and that's where money gets wasted in the federal government. It's a mismatch between quantity and what they actually need. And they get a really poor quality for their money, which just completely exacerbates the employee issues and talent attraction. Which is so important for government. Solving a lot of government problems means getting talent and particularly tech talent to help, you know, modernize government systems and programs. That's really critical for the future. And real estate, right now, the federal government, it's a blocker, it's an obstacle to to achieving that goal.
0: Yeah, when I was thinking about that 2010 date, Dan, I was thinking about that as the time that it that those telework centers disappeared, where GSA basically said, people aren't really using these things and it's not worth it to keep them going after that period of time that you're right. It was late nineties or around 2000, um, that they spun up and after a 10 12 year usage or lack thereof period, GSA basically said, well, this isn't really happening. There's no reason to keep these things going. What configuration wise is out there? What has the real estate industry learned about the way businesses, companies work in general, over the last two years, or could potentially work moving forward that applies today? Because my fear is that we're going to think, okay, what do employees want in 2022 at the expense of thinking about what employees might want to, how they might want to work and how they might work effectively in 2025 or 2027?
1: Yeah, I, I think what we're finding is there is a tremendous amount of variability. I mean, you have some companies that um, you know very much want to bring everybody back five days a week. I think some of the financial companies you've probably seen in the headlines um, that are trying to do that. And you know, if you're a Goldman Sachs, maybe maybe you can um, because there's so much demand to work there. Um, but um, you know, other other companies are taking a very different approach, depending on what type of culture they think is necessary in their, in their company for for their needs. Um, but I think probably the vast majority of what we are seeing, anyways, is they're landing somewhere in between those extremes of everyone comes back five days a week, or they just work fully remote, like and going fully remote. You know, we have actually customers on kind of both sides of, of that extreme, um, but I think you, you find we're finding most uh, office types of workers landing in between, but they don't have a lot of certainty as to what that's going to look like two years from now three years from now four years from now and so there's a lot of experimentation going on um and and so a real premium for short-term flexible contracts so that they're not committed because they just don't have the confidence that they'll make the right choice
0: we we were talking in the newsroom yesterday too that the uh, all of the chief human capital officers that i've talked to lately have they've expressed it in different ways but the concept that they're expressing is they visualize this continuum where at one end of the continuum are the agencies that offer lots of flexibility to their employees and the other end are the agencies that want people in the office every day 5 days a week and the belief among the chicos that I've talked to is that the agencies that are on the more flexible end of the spectrum are going to be the ones where all of those were a, a lot of the good employees and all of the agencies yeah. want to wind up, and that's, that is that. going to have a tremendous impact on the workforce, as you're describing it, too, I imagine. And then that has implications for the way that those organizations need to think about how they're going to to lay out their spaces for people.
1: Well, and within government, you, um, you have a lot of poaching of talent between agencies, um, and I can see that accelerating. Based on these types of things, right? If if you're a high demand employee in the, in the government, and you've got one agency that's saying this, and another agency that's giving you more flexibility your choices and in, in, in kind of your work environments, I think you, you you'll see kind of internal migration uh, within the government. So that's that's an issue for government agencies. Um, I think the and the reality is even agencies that you would think well that they're going to really have a really heavy um, in person type of of presence, just given by the, the nature of the job. If right. you think about the Department of Homeland Security, your TSA uh, uh, security agent, right? That's the job is there at the airport. You can't do that one from home, right? But even, even departments like Homeland Security, they're large organizations. They have a whole variety of, of really office-based uh, support functions that are large. Um, and. Um, and they have real potential. So parts of their workforce can be very effective remote. And I think they were a little bit surprised just how effective some of them could be uh, during the pandemic. So even agencies that you might think like, hmm, they probably don't have much uh, potential there for uh, 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 hybrid work. Um, a lot of them do. And they oftentimes have technology issues and uh, being on the kind of cutting edge of, of software modernization is really important for their mission success and that's where, you know, these issues of, of flexibility, choices, hybrid work, I think is really important to them. It's a, it's a talent play because that's so important to their mission.
0: Dan Matthews, great to talk to you as always. Thanks very much. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about Back to the Office in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming next week, a change in the office of the Coast Guard, C4IT, CG6. The outgoing assistant commandant for C4IT and nominee for best boss in federal IT, Rear Admiral David Dermanalian is on Wednesday's Daily Scoop podcast. You can catch that exit interview Wednesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. OPM's strategic plan for this year through 2026 includes four main goals. Those goals include some concrete metrics. Jerry Buchholz is strategic advisor at the Bolden Group. She's former chief human capital officer at NASA. Jerry, welcome. It's good to see you again. As I read through the strategic plan, I couldn't help thinking that it sounded remarkably similar to the National Academy of Public Administration's recommendations for the Office of Personnel Management. Am I reading things between the lines too much or is there something to that observation jerry welcome
2: oh thank you for having me first of all it's always great to um talk with you i think you are right and i think there are wise to go that direction um napa does a really good job of assessing human capital programs in the federal government and the larger federal aspects of human capital and human resources in the federal government. So to have that as the foundation for their plan is a really smart move on their part.
0: What jumps out at you in the things that OPM proposes that it should do over the next four years, Jerry?
2: I think they've done a really good job of describing the challenges that OPM is going to face over the next few years to become the organization that the federal government needs for 2022 and the future. And there are a couple of other things in there that I think are really good steps in the right direction, like the commitment to using and sharing data. OPM has been collecting bazillion bits and bytes of data on the federal workforce. They must be into the Yotta flop category (laughs) by now, but they've done very little to share that information back to individual agencies at the agency level government-wide data really doesn't have much utility. That government-wide data is for up and out to OMB, to the White House, to Congress, etc. But for agencies to make improvements at the agency level, which will then roll up into federal accomplishment, they need that agency-specific data. So the commitment to do that, I think, is um, a very, very useful thing. I also appreciated their interest in improving the skill level of HR professionals in the federal government. But that kind of leads me to some of the things that I didn't see in this plan.
0: Let's go through those because that's, I think, maybe the most important thing to consider is Somebody in your shoes as an agency, Chico, relies on OPM for what exactly, Jerry? What do you need? What does that person need from OPM as an organization? And what are they getting and potentially not getting by what they see in this strategic plan?
2: So one of the things that NAPA recommended was credentialing establishing credentialing programs for the federal government human resources workforce. And there's always been credentialing for delegated examining for staffing operations. There has never been credentialing for job classification, employee relations, labor relations, and benefits program management. I think that establishing credentialing programs for those very important disciplines of HR would be a good step forward for OPM and having the quality of HR operation that they need to manage the largest workforce in the United States. There were a couple other things, too, that I thought ought to be thoughtfully placed in there. It could be that these are in their operating plans and not in the strategic plan. There doesn't seem to be an effort to build relationships with agency heads, deputy agency heads, and chief operating officers. Some simple things that OPM could do is to have two Chico Council meetings a year where they include the agency head, the deputy agency head, and their chief human capital officer in so that they can communicate to those three individuals responsible for the management of people in the agency, the same information at the same time, rather than relying on trickle up to agency top leadership and trickle down to the supervisory workforce in the agency, who ultimately is going to have to change their day-to-day work behaviors in order to for OPM to achieve the metrics that they've described in this plan. The plan relies really heavily on the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, and that means that you really cannot approach it as the, from a global federal government perspective. You really have to dig deep into the first-line supervisors across the federal government, ask them to reorder their priorities and change their behavior so that employees will answer questions differently than they have in the past.
0: There are. Four, I mentioned there are four goals here, and I want to ping each one of them really quickly in the time that we have left, sure. Jerry. Because uh, what struck me about this is that, as I mentioned in the in the intro, they're very concrete goals. Uh, it's not just let's do better. They're trying to hit marks. We'll go backwards because you mentioned data, and that's goal four. Provide innovative and data-driven solutions to enable agencies to meet their missions. Increasing the percentage of users throughout government who agree that OPM offered innovative solutions while providing services or guidance by four points. Now, I, I will direct the question to Director Ahuja whether, why they chose four instead of three or five. That's not the point. But it's striking to me that they've, they've really set very specific, very deliberate markers here. What's the significance of that in the way that OPM would serve a chief human capital office in an agency? What does that make a difference in your view to the way that these goals might be uh, executed, uh, implemented, and the way and and the service that an agency might receive as a result of, of this goal setting?
2: Yeah, by setting a really specific number, like four points, it really drives the execution of this plan. There are three agencies, DOD, VA, and Homeland Security, that make up more than 50% of the federal workforce. In order for them to achieve point increase, they're going to really have to build strong relationships with those three agencies to raise the point values in those agencies. If they don't create those relationships, All the other agencies combined are not going to get them to their goal. So some very specific targeted agency relationship building is going to have to happen. And this is true for the other goals as well that aren't based on the federal employee, even those that are based on the federal employee viewpoint survey. Um, So that I didn't see anything in the plan specific to relationship building with those three organizations. But for the plan to succeed and goals to be met, that that must happen or the numbers just aren't going to be there. And on top of that, I would say that the agencies that are in the top quartile of the best places to work uh, in the federal government don't have enough headroom to make improvements significant enough to impact the overall federal score. So I would add to that list of DOD, VA, and Homeland Security, the Departments of Commerce and Treasury. And I think if you can really build strong working relationships, positive and productive working relationships using this plan, they will be able to demonstrate and measure the kinds of improvements that they are seeking. And that isn't to say that the rest of the federal government agencies are not important. But at some level, when you put numbers in a plan, you have to pay attention to what generates those numbers.
0: All right, going backwards, goal three is creating a human-centered customer experience by putting the needs of OPM's customers at the center of OPM's workforce services, policy, and oversight, increasing OPM's customer satisfaction index score for targeted services to 4.3 out of 5. Another hard number there, another hard goal for OPM to work toward.
2: I think that what they talk about in the plan about, Reducing the silos and stovepipes within OPM is actually exactly what they need to do on this one. I have had colleagues who have described to me situations where, for example, they hired OPM to develop their SES performance appraisal plan. And then when they packaged it all up and sent it into OPM to get it approved by the people who approved them, it wasn't approved. Um, at which point there was a lot of unhappiness because the reason that they had hired OPM in the first place right. was to smooth the approval process. That's right. So this idea that OPM is going to um, diligently work to break down those silos and have the different components of OPM working together to produce total service for the agency is a good one.
0: The goal number two is transforming OPM's organizational capacity and capability to better serve as the leader in federal human capital management. There's no hard goal or, or no hard metric on goal two, but as we drill down into the six objectives underneath, which unfortunately we don't have time to do, there are a lot of hard numbers in those objectives within goal number two, Jerry.
2: Right. And this one gets back to, I think, the capacity of the federal human resource enterprise. I talked about the credentialing, which I would really like to see more of. But in ye olden times, um, what happened was people would start their career at OPM, they'd go out to the federal agencies, and there would be annual conferences, staffing conference, employee labor relations conference, benefits conference, etc. And over time, people would share and gain knowledge uh, from their colleagues at these conferences, and thought leaders and innovative thinkers, in these disciplines would emerge, and eventually OPM would hire them back into the fold to be the well-known leaders of that discipline across the federal government. And that, that got broken down many years ago. And as a result, the federal government has no mechanism to both generate expertise as well as identify expertise, the widely regarded people with whom you can re- have a conversation, hard conversation, and really rely on what they have to share with you. So I would like to see them add some more of that, not just the individual capacity at OPM and the individual credentialing of federal, but also a broad look across the enterprise to, uh, Uh, developing, retaining, and capitalizing on the expertise that exists.
0: All right. Goal number one. It it turns out we did this countdown style, Jerry. A goal number one (laughs) is positioning the federal government as a model employer, improving the government-wide satisfaction index score by four points. Again, a hard number, the objectives underneath it have hard numbers. What do you see there?
2: That is, again, where I think you really got to hit hard on those agencies in the second quartile of the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that have the capacity to improve their scores and have the headroom in order to be able to do that. And again, I would love to, I want to repeat that I'm not talking about ignoring everybody else but to hit a hard number like that that's the kind of strategy you're going to have to use this one is also one of my favorite things in the whole plan is this idea of using social media to promote the accomplishments of federal government employees the federal government has never done enough of this there are so many interesting people in the federal government and i don't think people realize how highly skilled and highly technical federal government work is Um, um, you kind of know it from movies and commercials and uh, television shows. You know, you see movies like The Day After Tomorrow is My Favorite, where a paleo meteorologist from NOAA is the hero of the movie. Um, and you see it, of course, in all the commercials that have astronauts in them, which until very recently, those were all GS 15s in the federal government. So it just hasn't. they don't tell their story, I think, well enough. And then the second thing under this one, too, is there really does need to be a much better campaign across the federal government for the federal government to explain to its workforce the value of its benefits package because it is really quite extraordinary, the value that um, federal employees get from their benefits package. And yet most of them don't realize that. There is an employee benefit statement that goes to some employees in the federal government, but not all. It depends on who your payroll provider is. And that's something that I think that all federal government employees would benefit from.
0: Jerry Buckholtz, wonderful insight. Thank you very much for talking about this today. I appreciate your time.
2: Thank you so much. Great to be here.
0: You can read more about OPM strategy in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Defense Department's award for its enterprise-wide cloud contract is on hold now, but that's not stopping organizations all over the department from moving applications and data to the cloud. Renata Spinks is Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Marine Corps. She tells my FedScoop colleague, Billy Mitchell, the Marine Corps move to the cloud has been multifaceted.
3: Whether that's in user support for email such as 0 0365, you know, everyone went to the O365 area because of um, teleworking and COVID-19. But for Marine Corps, we were already on that journey to take advantage of different capabilities that we already had um, procured previously. So we were kind of better lucky than good. Um, And so that was awesome. But we also have cloud applications. And these applications are sitting in data centers all across the world that the Marine Corps is either sustaining, they're maintaining, um, and we're operating out of. And so it was so necessary to take a look at industry and see what kind of commercial um, opportunities do we have to migrate our data to the cloud. Um, DISC has done a great job of having a lot of those offerings. Um, and we took it from a perspective of security, but also there's a fiscal um, area of focus where we're looking at efficient ways of spending funds. Um, how can we take some of that money and reinvest in our workforce to learn things like software development? We have Marines who can code. We have um, innovation challenges. So it was really a holistic, um, great journey um, within the multi-cloud area.
1: It's fantastic. And you mentioned security, so I'd love to go there next. How do you see public sector agencies taking more innovative approaches to cybersecurity and data protection in 2022?
3: I tell you, the public sector is an area, academia, industry, um, our other partners that are also engaged in the many areas that we may not get a chance to engage with. So that information sharing is so important. But innovation, we just just listened to several um, presentations earlier today, and then we were talking about digital transformation. I like to say the Marine Corps is on a path of revolutionizing our information environment because there are so many drastic changes that people think about at the Marine Corps and they are literally shocked at some of the things that we're doing within our culture. So I think um, adopting innovation is an area we've definitely matured in. Um, we've, we've adopted agile practices in our um, areas of software development. And we're learning. Um, we're learning about those different platforms and opportunities that are already in place. And industry is helping us figure it out. And so we take a team of team approach. And when you would think of a team of teams approach, you automatically probably think, oh, it's just services, or we're talking about when we work with the Air Force or the Navy, but that's not only who we work with. We also work with industry partners, um, colleges, um, community colleges, large universities, small universities, There's even consortiums and symposiums and um, many organizations that we learn a lot from. So investing in that research and development area and investing, I mean by time and funding, um, I think that's how we stay on the glide scope of keeping up with all the innovation that's going on and taking advantage of everything that we're all learning.
1: So I know talent and workforce is something that's near and dear to you um, and I'd love to ask you how do you see digital workforce enablement helping agencies improve how they attract, attract and retain skilled employees
3: so the commandant's one of his number one focuses and and you know I, I look across the Marine Corps and we are probably um, I think it's accurate to say we have a lot of number ones And because there are many different entities working each priority, we have that flexibility to be able to to have those number one priorities. And so one of them is talent management. And that's an area of focus that we are honing in on. We wanna make sure that we can use data that we already have. Use artificial intelligence and machine learning to do a little bit of predictions. Predictions of what are some of the trends we're seeing, whether that's exit interviews, when our Marines are choosing to not re-enlist and instead they they go out and they join industry to do something um, different and, and better. But also, you know, maybe that service to the country for that moment as active duty is not their priority, but maybe they'll join the reserves and still continue to contribute. So there's a lot of data out there that indicates a lot of um, what we should pay attention to and how we can come up with those strategies for retention and, and workforce training. But if we don't have the technology that allows us as um, human beings to glean that information, visualize it, and provide it to our decision makers, I think we're doing a disjustice to ourselves, right? So being able to make sure that innovation is adopted, the technology is there from a talent management perspective, is about our active duty Marines, our reservists, and our civilians who are supporting us. That means things like the IDI platform. I'm pretty sure everyone's heard about that on LinkedIn. If you look up General Glavy, Matthew Glavy, he's um, definitely been a proponent for that as the Deputy Commandant of Information. Um, but we're also looking at other ways that we can involve our workforce. How do we um, take advantage of fellowships, not just at the Naval Postgraduate Schools and, and things that you hear a lot about, even up at Fort Meade with our Marfor Cyber Teams? But there's also opportunities for Online learning, that's that's one thing that we've done a great job of uh, shifting to, is getting those um, opportunities for online learning. There's a lot of um, platforms that we can use, um, not just YouTube, because I go to YouTube a lot and, and look up things like cloud security, and there's plenty mm-hmm. of them. Um, Opportunities there, but we also want to make sure that they can walk away. Our workforce can walk away with something in hand that shows their level of proficiency, that rewards them for the time that they have spent learning these new ways of adopting new technology and learning the skill set. So that certifications, certificates of trainings, um, recognition with just within our um, Deputy Commandant of Information environment, whether that's being a champion of cloud, is something that we're looking at. How can we recognize? our workforce because that drive recognition drives appreciation and when you feel appreciated you'd be surprised how much people can um, continue to produce for you. That's great.
1: So as we close out you mentioned it a little bit earlier in our conversation but agencies had to move rapidly during the pandemic to acquire new IT solutions and I would be curious how do you see those efforts uh, impacting longer term acquisition reforms moving forward?
3: Well, I think it's already impacting acquisition reform. Um, A lot of what the Department of Defense is seeing, we we just saw a recent, um, I want to say April, it it may have been March or February when the um, Secretary of Defense Office came up, came out with a few opportunities within what we call rapid acquisition. Um, There are other uh, opportunities within the acquisition and, procurement community such as other transactional authorities. Um, There are many ways that we are now working with the acquisition teams to continue to um, take advantage of training credits on contracts. Um, A lot of that already existed, but I think we did not do probably a good job of recognizing what that meant. And to be totally honest with you, in all transparency, most times when I read a contract, I go straight to my products. You know, I go straight to the tools that I'm looking for, those deliverables. Recently, I've started to say, well, where's the training section on here? Only to find out that those training credits are there. Um, And so we've been making some very deliberate approaches in the past three and a half to four years that I've been in the Marine Corps. And for the Marine Corps, we're not perfect. By the way, I want to say that we're perfect, Um, but one thing I noticed when I first joined the Marine Corps three and a half years ago was training was not a conversation that was a dispute. That was something that was always championed. It is a requirement all the way up to intellectual curiosity from a technical perspective, but We're some of the fittest Marines in the world because we've enforced, you know, physical fitness as well as, you know, mental health, as well as, you know, building those skill sets. So training has never been something that you saw leadership push back on. And I love that about the Marine Corps.
0: Renata Spinks, Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Marine Corps with my FedScoop colleague, Billy Mitchell. You can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on whatever device you get your shows. And if you really like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the Daily Scoop podcast. This program's a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helped me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns Monday afternoon. Have a great weekend. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.